0: Hello and welcome to Access Chat. Today we're joined by Ali Ingersoll. Ali, we're delighted to have you. Ali is a day trader, disability strategy consultant, Miss Wheelchair North Carolina 2022. She's also a writer, blogger, editor, and public speaker. And you started your advocacy mission, if I'm right, after being repeatedly denied medical necessities. And you spent the last years since becoming a C6, quadriplegic, and full-time wheelchair user advocating for yourself and for others. So, Ali, welcome to Access Chat. It's great to have you with us. And, and tell us more about your story and your passion and, and what you do.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. And it it's wonderful to be here. Yes, so I have a very interesting background for my disability career. I, I spent the, my life um, before my accident um, growing up around the world, traveling, experiencing different experiencing different cultures, living in China, and it, um, when I was 27, I was living in the Bahamas at my home at the time, and I was learning to become a technical analysis day trader uh, with a specific type of methodology. And when I finished my 12,000-page course in self-study, I took a shallow water dive in celebration, <laughs> and unfortunately, I just hit, hit, hit sand and became a C6 quadriplegic, paralyzed from the chest down with limited upper mo- bo- um, upper body mobility. And For many years, I continued to day trade, and I went through medical challenges that I couldn't even care to recount. I've lost count how many surgeries, and I ended up in China after my surgery, and I'd spent many years in my teens and 20s there undergoing a spinal surgery and a rehab program for several years. And I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in 2015, and I started to really get involved in the um advocacy world, but for myself, fighting health insurance companies that kept denying me medically necessary equipment. I needed to not only survive in life, but to thrive. And so I taught myself how to write letters of medical necessity and fight the insurance companies, a little guy backed up by peer-reviewed journal articles, and started to get involved with online Facebook groups of spinal cord injury um, folks. And I realized there was such a demand for figuring out how to navigate the health insurance process. So it became a national mission of mine. And then fast forward, I started partnering with national organizations, individuals, um, creating a website called the dot um, com and writing about my journey. And it, it morphed into this beautiful mission of not only health insurance, but normalizing really uncomfortable topics and disability, ones that needed awareness and education and through the lens of a dark humor, actually, because life is challenging. Um, disability doesn't discriminate. Anyone of us can join this club for any reason. So, while you know, I fight and I work hard, and I, I do a lot of disability um, strategy consultant for um, consulting for different organizations. My core mission in life, I would say, is uh, promoting and teaching self advocacy. It's really important. You have to be pleasantly persistent. Um, It's a full-time job in and of itself, sometimes just to survive. I hate that. That's the way the system works in in most systems. But one also needs to take pause and realize that we are in the United States in a first-world country. So it's important to fight for change and advocate, but also realizing that we have a system that we can do that in, unlike in many third-world countries.
0: Yeah. So a couple of of things. Um, you, you, You talked about being pleasantly persistent. Which I think is is really interesting because I think that this is it's a challenge because I, you know I can totally understand how many of the people in our community get to the point where they no longer wish to be pleasant because their persistence has and the and the system has ground them down um, but We've got to remember that we're not dealing with the same person every time so whilst we might have been dealing with the system and feel systemically oppressed, we're still relating to individuals so again I think that that um, some not not to say restraint because we we have to be able to advocate clearly and powerfully but but the doing it pleasantly as you say without without being too aggressive and combative but maintaining that persistence and being able to not not stop not not give up uh, and and um to really to not take no for an answer while still doing it in a in a a respectful way is really key to, to to actually moving the dial forwards on this and and i wish that it weren't so and that we didn't have to constantly do this but we do. Um, and, and also the second point, I think, is you mentioned that the U.S. is a first world country, but it is a first world country which is unique in that it doesn't have universal healthcare. Correct.
1: Absolutely. And, and my dad brought me up with a saying, he said, no is a starting negotiation point, Ali. <laughs> and, you know, when being pleasantly persistent, I think one key strategy I use, and it's, it's challenging from the human condition to do that, But when you are on the phone with an insurance company, for example, and you are fighting and you keep getting 10 different people, it's very easy to get frustrated with the next person you speak with because you think they're all in cohorts together and they're speaking with one another. But oftentimes they're independent of one another. So treating a person independently and not bringing those past frustrations onto the new person you're speaking with is critically important. Just as with caregiving, being a quadriplegic, I have full time care. I have had horrible things done to me, criminal things done to me. But when a new person comes to my home, making sure to treat them the res- respect and not carry on that to the next person. And I think, you know, a lot of people do get frustrated. And I might be genetically wired, I'm not quite sure. Um, but I go outside and I meditate and then I make sure that. Um, On the weekends, I go out and I live life and I have adventures and I do things. So when I come back to my command center, which is my accessible computer screen, I can start out fresh.
0: Excellent. Deborah, I know you had a question.
2: Well, I'm just so impressed with Allie. And you know what, Ali, I will say that what you just said, um, be sure not to put it on the next person. I'm guilty of doing that. I'm unfortunately guilty of that. And I have gotten so frustrated by the time I get to the next person. I'm being really hateful to them and they don't appreciate Mm -hmm. it. And then I feel horrible because I don't want to be so... That is just such beautiful advice. I also like the advice that you were talking about where you're really grounding the arguments in peer um, reviewed journal articles because, you know, you can tell them why you need it and hope they're empathetic and compassionate. But, you know, that helps to do your homework and talk to them. So I think it's very important. And I also I I wonder how, because I agree with Neil, it's embarrassing that we don't have universal coverage here in the United States. It's terrible what we do to people in the United States and a developed country. But I wonder, Neil, how does this work in universal, you know, insurance coverage like Canada or or the UK or something? Because are they making sure that people like Ali are really getting what she needs? And is there any place? I mean, I just would wonder.
0: No, is perfect. Right. right, right. Um, so we have healthcare that's free at the point of delivery we do pay for it obviously we pay for it in our in our taxes um and not every treatment is available right so, that's so okay. we we yeah. um have a, a regulatory body in the uk called nice uh it's the national institute for clinical and health excellence we don't pronounce the h um which is very French, um, but but they decide which treatments the the National Health Service is able to offer mm-hmm. to the public. So there may be treatments that have been developed in the US, for example, that aren't available in the UK under that, that, that universal cover. Right. So then you would still have to advocate, or there may be constraints as to who's allowed it so so it's not to say that we're perfect. We're, we're not. And, and, you know, there is only so much money to go round in funding um, health treatments. So there is a rationale behind having a body like this to decide what's applicable and what's not. But there is still a need, even in a, a universally funded system, to be able to advocate and, and to be able to put your point across and to, to do your research um, and, and be informed. Right.
1: Right. That's well, a really interesting point because it is a double-edged sword in that I have a lot of good friends who are in wheelchairs in England and they run into the issues. They said, yes, your healthcare system in the United States, it's more expensive than ours. However, when you want to see a specialist doctor we have uh, more availability and accessibility to see who we want, how we want to see them versus sometimes waiting months for an appointment for a treatment that may not be approved yet. So there's pros and cons to each. Absolutely. And you know, one important point you said, Deborah's, no, I tried the emotional route with health insurance companies years ago. It doesn't work. They Mm -hmm. want to know the clinical rationale Is it going to reduce a pressure sore? Is it going to um, prevent osteoporosis? And if you can make that argument, then you have a higher chance of success.
2: And I also just would wonder, just picking on nice with no H, do they have someone like Allie? on there that's making these decisions because I get you're putting medical personnel there and scientists on there, but are you actually putting talented, qualified, amazing people like Ali on there so that we can make the right decisions? And I would assume not only in England, but I mean in the UK, but also in the United States, no, we're not doing that. So people are making decisions about our lives that have never had these lived experiences. So I think that's another reason why I think Ali's work is so important. And so um, I, I just, that's one of the things she does, but I just am really impressed with how she has taken her life and realized so many other people need this type of help as well. So um, no,
3: no, if you allow me, something that, that we uh, have observed over the years is that the the individual, the advocacy coming from individuals is much stronger in the United States, in Canada, or in the United Kingdom, while in other countries, other people take care of that on behalf of people with, with certain disabilities. You know, or, sometimes organizations do that. And sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't work because the people who have the need are not actually being listened. So I think that, of course, we have universal health care in in Portugal and in Ireland, but uh, in terms of individual advocacy is is not as strong. So people are, are not as visible as they are in other countries.
2: Great point. Great point. And that's why we need Ali's voice. And the Allie's of the world's voice is really heard at like the World Health Organization level at the top of the UN. Only because as we're breaking apart our world right now, why don't we rebuild it so that everybody can be included? Which I think is powerful.
1: I mean, but that I- speaks to people in the diversity, equity, inclusion divisions and corporations. How many of them have disabilities, right? You always hear women, people of color, LGBTQ, but disabilities getting left out of the conversation altogether, even in the simple mission statements of their diversity, equity, and inclusion.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think I, I think it was interesting. I was on Twitter, no surprise, the other day, <laughs> and I saw a tweet from a friend of ours, uh, Andrew Haywood, who set up the Twitter ABLE Employee Resource Group commenting to you know to Parag, who's the CEO of Twitter, and Elon Musk, <laughs> who is just joining the board of Twitter, having bought a nine percent share. Um, <clears throat> that can we have better disability representation on the board of Twitter? Mm-hmm. The thing is now they've got one at least one neurodivergent person on their board. And they also have um, someone with physical disabilities on their board. However, it hasn't, to this point, really changed their policies. It'll be interesting to see whether or not they um, they change their policies at all, um, because the the person with the physical disabilities doesn't really consider accessibility. Um, and. Elon Musk is Elon Musk, and yeah. probably doesn't consider his autism to be a disability rather it to be an advantage. So so whether the the existence of disabled people in the makeup of boards solves the problem, I think there needs to be sort of actual clear roles in boards for this. like you have clear roles for for other representative groups so for, for example in in the company that antonio and i work for we have employee shareholder representatives as board members so it's it's possible to to create a structure where there is this proper inclusion and a, and a proper outlook for it because actually yeah, amongst the disability community, there's a huge amount of internalized ableism. Just because you're disabled doesn't mean that you actually understand the the rest of the community or even have empathy for it, because you may actually dislike that part of yourself or be in total denial.
1: And there's also a, a lot lar- What mm-hmm. I'm seeing is I'm now working in the disability community quite a lot. I was stuck in the mobility impairment for so long, and I'm now working with people that are blind, low vision, hard of hearing, neurodiverse. And there are so many things that I know. I didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, case in point, I was making a document for a, a man who was uh, a low vision, and I realized I didn't know how to make a Word document accessible because I didn't have a need before, right? So there's a lot of segmentation within the disability community, too, that we need to fix that before how can we expect corporations and organizations to create these policies if we're if we're not even aware of what the other one is up to
0: yeah and 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 i'm not trying to criticize the the board member at twitter she acquired the disability as part of an accident um going rallying in the Paris Dakar, i think it was and spent a long time in hospital and rehabilitation but but probably
3: doesn't consider herself to be disabled, even. No, but but, but for example, we have situations in Europe where where we had ministers and secretaries of state with disability responsible for this disability agenda and that hasn't made any difference. Right. Because in in, in fact, sometimes they, they respond to the prime minister, they respond to the minister of finance and they let themselves, you know, Let go in that, in all the politics, and and nothing really happens.
2: Yeah, it's discouraging. I, I also think that I know that when I first met Ali, I was blown away with who she is and everything that she's doing. I was just really blown away by her and um, her brilliance, uh, just to everything that she is. And she was talking to me at the time about, you know, wanting to get more involved in the DEI and, you know, working with corporations and helping with that. And uh, what I was worried about, and I told her this, was that corporations weren't going to see her. They weren't really going to see her. What they were going to do, which I'm sorry, I see this all the time. And I will tell you, Neil except with ATOS, uh, except with your team, I don't know why you're doing it so right and thinking about this in a much different way. But I was worried that Allie would get put in some, because what we do in the United States is we do DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we don't really do it. And we don't really include people and we don't let them have any kind of say or authority or budget or Influence and I was just really afraid it might crush her spirit. I nothing's going to crush her spirit, but I actually discouraged her from applying for jobs with large corporations because what I keep seeing is these corporations they might put in that little token, you know, role, but then they never they don't really allow the people to be who they are. And I, I that that really bothers me. I know Antonio, you wanted to comment.
3: No, uh, no, it, it's true, so, uh, unless. Uh, there's a, a strong sponsorship from the board and from the CEO, I don't think nothing will ever happen. And we can go back 20 years and learn for, uh, even from the from the diversity agenda and we realized nothing really changed because only a few CEOs were really committed with it.
2: Right. I agree. And what do you think, Ali? Because that's what I was worried about just because she's so brilliant. She's so brilliant.
1: I think a lot of it comes down to not only you have to have first commitment from the CEOs and top down, of course, and I think a lot of that comes with creating a very um, robust DNI roadmap strategy, and a lot of corporations aren't capable of creating that themselves, so I think they need outside consultants to help them with that. But then is it, it's, it's a multi-pronged approach, having an extremely strong employee resource group we are going to take very specific actionable steps to a CEO and the top management, the C-suite leaders who can actually affect that change. And what you alluded to earlier, Deborah, is a budget, right? So that budgetary right. challenges, they just throw, here's a little bit of money, do what you can with this. But the, the, um, you know, DEI um, departments and the HR, they don't speak with one another. I mean, there was one corporation and I wrote them a list of questions and they were interested in hiring me. And from an accessibility, I said, I can be just as efficient as, and effective that I work from home, but here is my accessibility requirements. And the HR people, they had no idea how to answer my questions. No, yeah.
0: yeah. And I, I think that, that that is a challenge, even in organizations that have accessibility functions is that, especially in multinationals, that... That, that getting them outside of the silos and, and, and embedding that across the entirety of the organization and having inclusive practice is a long-term thing. It's a it's a multi-year strategy. It's not a sort of something that you can sort of press a button and it's done, and it's something that you need to continuously iterate.
1: But you know where so, that starts from from fear, right? People are scared. They don't know questions or how to offend. So a lot of that comes from people like me with a disability being willing to talk about it, educate. Okay, here is A mm-hmm. through B um, just from if I need to use my own laptop with has my software, yeah. let's talk about security protocols. So that comes from, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to approach us with disabilities because they don't want to offend us. But we need to be open mm-hmm. and have those honest conversations with them.
3: Yeah,
0: a- absolutely. And and you mentioned the the employee resource groups or or networks, um, depending on where you are in the world. And yes. we have we have one in our organisation which we call Adapt. Um, I can't claim to have coined the name. That was down to a brilliant lady called Sarah Brooks. Um, named instead of, you know, Ability or, you know, or some of the other names we chose Adapt because people with disabilities constantly having to adapt to our circumstances and our environment. And at the same time, the, the purpose of the network was to help the company change, act as a catalyst. And whilst I run the, the policy and the expert centres for the organisation... The, I'm only a sponsor for the uh, for Adapt because they have their own voice and 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 they're there. They're not run by HR. They're, there is some funding from HR, but they're not they're not run by HR. They're there to hold us to account, to to advocate within the organisation. Now we may not always agree, but it's important to have that authentic voice. And for it not to be restricted in them having that voice, so it's it's real. We may not always have exactly what they want, but they can they can keep us honest um, and, and so we have this dialogue. We do have exec sponsors as well, and some of the exec sponsors identify as having disabilities, which is great because again, then you have role models. Uh, and we have, you know, senior role models, SVPs within the organisation that are sponsors that that identify. And then when you're talking about the, the whole identity and safe to self-identify piece, we we do the work um, as the IT partner for the Olympics and Paralympics, and they started the we the 15 movement. Um, and we use this within our own organisation because of our ties to to ha- – to start bringing people to conversations, to adapt. So we, we've we been running a little campaign called 15 Seconds of Fame, where we get the members, and, and literally they talk for 15 seconds about why they identify, you know, with disability. Now, it might be that they are an ally or they may talk about their own disability and why they're supporting ADAPT in, you know, and we the 15. And so that's sort of created this, Interest because of the work that we're doing around sport, and it being one of our clients, and then people are actually seeing their colleagues talking about it openly um, for the first time, and 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 this is you know across lots and lots of different countries. So we've got people from India, South America, um, Germany, France, Spain, UK, Portugal, etc. So it's it, it's running and it's running across the gamut, and and I think that that's important that people can see that we're you know we're all part of well that's such a key
1: linchpin right because historically for so long and even today disability has been synonymous with disadvantage and weakness right and so many of us with disabilities are very, you know, we're, we have a lot of ingenuity. We stay at jobs longer. We work harder. We just through, I mean, even just the act of our lived disability experiences. So many people I know are are incredible at um, time management and scheduling and planning every moment of their life because Mm -hmm. I mean, I spend three or four hours a day just on my caregiving, my life before I even get to my day. I wake up at five in the morning, get to my computer screens at eight. I've already had three hours just to survive and I haven't even started my work yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was laughing when you said we're so good at time management as an ADHD. And that's, that's my Achilles heel, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have the opposite. I, I, I plan everything like military time in my life. <laughs> yeah.
2: But it's because of caregiving, which is another issue that Allie mm-hmm. and I are taking on. Uh, very proud that Allie and Neil are part of the Billion Strong Board, which we haven't announced yet because you know what happened with my husband, but, and Caroline Casey too, w- which is so important. but, You know, how do we do this? How do we take our community and come together with pride and tell these 500 corporations, for example, that no, we are here. We have alleys, but where are the alleys and where are the... The Niels, and where are the Deborah's that are willing to disclose? But I, I still believe that a huge issue that we have is that we are including neurodiverse people like Neil and myself, we might not know how to accommodate them so we can be our best, but we are not including people like Allie. we are not because it's too hard, it's too much trouble, I don't understand. And so I know this is unfair to you, Allie, what I'm about to do to you, but if you had a magic wand that you could, you know, you know, really change things and you were talking to these 500 corporations, including Atos, Atos is here, and, and Atos really works a lot with Siemens. So they represent a lot of these big brands that they honestly do care. They do care about us, but I just am worried about our community not wanting to identify our lived experience with pride. And also, I still contend that the people that are being left out are the people with what we consider more severe disabilities. So I was just wanted to throw that to you unfairly Ellie sorry
1: no i think that's true so i don't do what i do for money however i need to survive we all need to survive so especially in the united states many of us with severe physical disabilities who need caregiving round the clock for example Uh, many of people are on Medicare and Medicaid and they can only make about $1,100 a month. Otherwise, their benefits are taken away. Otherwise, they need to make a hundred grand plus, maybe 80 grand plus at least because they have to pay for their health insurance and they have to pay for full-time caregivers out of pocket. I don't qualify for Medicaid. Um, I decided to get married and therefore I don't qualify and I make too much money for Medicare, SSDI. And so, you know, a huge challenge is with these corporations that want us, they, they may have to pay more for us. And because we need to make a living, I mean, plain and simple. And that's a huge challenge. I think about all the time where I do consulting, I do day trading. And there are days when the pain is just overwhelming. I, I suffer from terrible nerve pain, but I get up, I suck it up and I work because I don't have that option not to work. And that can be really, really challenging. Wow.
0: I- you reminded me of one of the other things that always makes me raise eyebrows um, when I hear about how the structure of the system is in the U.S. It's like I got married, so now I'm disqualified. Right, right. You know, I so, conversation so, so the other so day, a, you know, you can have benefits or you can get married. You can right. you can have health care or you can marry the person you love or you can just that that just seems inhumane.
1: You know what's inhumane as well? If you're on Medicare or Medicaid, for example, oftentimes on Medicare, they will tell you how many catheters you can use a month based on a doctor's prescription. You are only allowed a certain amount of catheters per month. The government is telling you how many times you can go pee in a day. I have friends that have to pee a lot because they want to drink water and stay healthy, and they have to reuse their catheters and sterilize them at home this is a first world country. This is Medicare. I mean, it is it is maddening and inhumane, as you mentioned.
2: Yes. That's a really good word. And and not evolved, not evolved. And that's why I remember when um, Allie was talking to a corporation that wanted her and I, I was just starting and it, she, I'm just her friend, but she was making some comments to me about what they were saying. And I was like, I was, I was afraid for, her. I said, I'm just so afraid, Ali, they're not going to see you. They're not, they might hire you in as a token, but it's like, what a waste, what Mm. a waste to do that. What a waste to society to do that. These corporate brands, they need to find the alleys. They need to find the meals. They need to find the people that really can make a difference. If you don't like the way the world works, What are you doing to change it? And that's one thing that I just love about Mm -hmm. Ali's work. I just love it. And Ali, can I also maybe shift a little bit in that? I know I'm very proud of you that you are, you won Miss North Carolina Wheelchair. And of course, we're going to immediately, and because you did get a crayon, I love crayons, sorry, but it isn't a beauty pageant per se. And I was just wondering if maybe you could talk about why, why did you even decide to go to that path? And what does that mean?
1: I was approached to run. It's an advocacy pageant, um, and there's two different um, competitions nationally, Miss Wheelchair America and Miss Wheelchair USA. For Miss Wheelchair America, you have to win your specific state first, and I was asked to run, and my platform was health insurance advocacy, so teaching people how to navigate the intricacies of the health insurance appeal system um, but specifically a lot of tips and tricks that I have learned the really, the really hard way. So that's what I won on. Um, but I'm using that to propel forward for policy change on equipment that insurance companies don't find medically necessary. For example, adaptive exercise equipment. So it's a non-covered benefit item, very briefly. Of course, anything exercise equipment, you know, insurance isn't going to approve a treadmill for an able-bodied person who can walk outside. But they're not differentiating what an adaptive piece of equipment is that's going to reduce comorbidities and reduce secondary complications and diabetes. So it's an issue of health equity versus health equality right? One size doesn't fit all. This is not news. This has been around for a while, but insurance companies, it's like moving the dial. I was working with the Blue Cross and Blue Shield North Carolina policy directors directly after I won Miss Wilter North Carolina. They wrote me a beautiful, I'm not going to swear on Twitter, but a beautiful blow off letter um, stating that we care about your healthcare and diversity, including yada, yada, yada. So I'm now introducing legislation in May. I'm sure it will fail, but I will keep going on that. And then in nationals in August, I'm competing. It's going to be on health insurance advocacy, trying to navigate. I'm trying to change the system. But presently, if you're in a broken system, how do you navigate within that broken system to get what you need? It's unfair. It's unjust. But until we see that systemic change, we have to figure out how to navigate within it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree on your two-pronged approach. Just one one comment back to you saying, well, you know, they wouldn't pay for stuff to keep you healthy if you're able-bodied, there is a movement, certainly in in the UK and in other places, to actually start doing this kind of preventative prescriptions. So they are prescribing swimming. They it's are much prescribing. It's going to save so much it more pays money. It's a huge amount of money. Who, who cost
1: $60,000 on my butt for a pressure sore because they did not provide me with the right mattress that would have cost 3000 I eventually won it, but after spending an entire year in bed, with a pressure sore on my tailbone down to my bone and multiple surgeries. It's yeah. outrageous.
0: Yeah. So so they, they, there has been this recognition that it's actually cost effective to, to, to take a preventative medicine approach. So I hope that that makes its way across the Atlantic at some point. It's still not fully mainstream here yet, but it, it is something that they're encouraging doctors to prescribe these alternative uh, things. Um, so I hope that happens. But um, what has
1: changed about, right, so I may work on this adaptive exercise equipment for a year or mm-hmm. 10 years, yeah. even if I fail, if what I'm doing and advertising on social media and my my blog and, and, you know, or, um you know, Twitter, if I can inspire one person to take on that mission, right, you know, people think, what is one person going to do, right, it, it's a cliche, but one person can do a lot, even if it ignites, you know, frustration in somebody else to carry it on.
0: Yeah, no, ab- ab- absolutely, and, and I think that, you know within large and complex systems whether that be a healthcare system mm-hmm. or a large corporation you have to take that two pronged approach of looking to make systemic change and figuring out what you can do within the constraints of the system that you're living in right now precisely so yeah that that, that makes total sense to me and yes one person can make a difference you know i i think that you know, I, I started within our organization. I was the only person doing accessibility. We've got 30 full-time. Plus, we've got another 100 people doing it as part of their roles within within the organization. It will continue to grow. But you know, it does take time. And, and meanwhile, you have to sort of find your way around the roadblocks and navigate those systems and be creative. And you know what? We're living in uncertain times companies can benefit from the creativity that that people with disabilities are going to bring to their organization i
1: live by a quote every morning when i wake up by winston churchill the definition of success is moving from failure to failure without lack of enthusiasm that that either makes me laugh or cry on some mornings but it keeps me going nonetheless
0: (laughs) brilliant yes excellent so ali it's been a real pleasure to have you on i'm really looking forward to you joining us on on And I need to also thank MyClearText for keeping this captioned and accessible. So thank you, everyone.
1: Thank you so much.